Your Bibles turn to Romans chapter 8. We want to conclude our study of Romans 8. We want to do sort of our Christmas thing starting next week, Lord willing. So I want to finish this this chapter. And um, I've shared this, I think, each week. Uh, There's a stereotype of every pastor. If you ask every pastor, what is your favorite passage? And they'll say, whatever it is I'm preaching on next, right? Whatever it is I'm studying, that's my new favorite passage. And there's real truth to that. Um, But I will say Romans 8 has been really good for me. And I've made a lot of references to it outside of worship in the last several weeks because it is the sweet spot of Romans. Um, And what's helped me is to see that it's not about salvation. I always read it that way. There is now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, he's talking to sinners. No, actually, he's talking to believers. And that has helped me more than anything. It's helped me share that with other believers because here we see Paul as the theologian pastor. It's deeply theological, of course, but it's, it's uh, deeply pastoral as well. Romans chapter 8, if you'll stand with me, we'll read verses 31 and go to the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, he can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, who gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor debt nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to uh, help us, Lord, as we read this text, that we believe it and apply it to our lives. Open our entire being from our heart to our mind, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet every bit of our body and soul. We receive it by faith and we apply it by faith. Transform us by your spirit that you promised us here. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. Be seated. Have you ever heard of the name Saru Brearley? I guarantee you I am mispronouncing his name. Uh, Saru uh, was uh, was originally from India, and at the age of three, his father abandoned the family. He had, uh, I believe, two or three older siblings at the time, and just walked out on the family to be with another woman. Uh, Saru's mother never legally divorced his father, which put them down a path of deep uh, poverty. So much so that even as a three, four, five-year-old, Saru and his brothers had to beg for food and money and resources. They would scavenge all over their, their neighborhood, and they would spend most of their day uh, pursuing those sort of avenues just to get by. Through a series of unfortunate events, Saru and his, and his older brother were out uh, uh, looking for work, out you know, looking for food and money and whatnot, and Saru found himself uh, on a train. Thinking his brother was on that train, Saru got really tired and he fell asleep. Before he knew it, when he woke up, the train had taken off and his brother was nowhere to be found. There was nothing he could do but wait until the train came to a stop, but even when it came to a stop, he couldn't open the door. It had to be open from the outside. 
And after over 900 mile trip, someone opened the cargo and he immediately ran out into a strange place in a strange town as a five-year-old. There at the age of five, he uh, tried to survive on his own. He was already experienced in begging and scavenging. And so for several weeks, he lived off of scavenging uh, food and begging for resources until eventually he was uh, taken as a lost boy into an orphanage. He spent some time there until a loving family, the Briary family from Tasmania, Australia, came to, 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 to adopt him. They took him to Australia where he grew up in uh, loving parents' homes. And this is a picture of him. You, you can see him there. Uh, he, he went on to have a degree, I think, in business and in other stuff and has found some success. Saru's story of abandonment is a haunting one to read. But it is what immediately comes to mind when I read this text. He was a lost boy searching for his home, as are many of us. Think about it. Can you imagine anything scarier for a young boy than to discover you are forever separated from your family, separated from everything you've ever known? You are a strange boy in a strange land, and your memories of home aren't yet developed in Romans 8, Paul comforts the believer with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, we've looked at this each week, and I think it's, it's been helpful to me, so hopefully it's helpful to you. When Paul turns the conversation from what is the gospel, how is one saved, to what does it mean to live a life as uh, someone who's been redeemed, he begins by saying, avoid these two extremes— Legalism on the one hand, I believe that's, that's chapter 6, and libertarianism on, on the other, chapter 7. And his point is, is that these, these are the natural temptation of men. That is, you, you come to Jesus and you have this, this, this clear understanding of what sin is and the guilt and the shame that comes with it. And, and, and so one temptation is to say, I don't want to sin, therefore I'll keep all these made-up rules. Legalism. And that's, that's not good. That's not the gospel. Because that's not the gospel you believe. It's not the gospel that will sustain you. The other extreme is to say, well, I've been saved from my sin. I can go do whatever it is that I want. And Paul would remind you that if you were saved from slavery, why would you jump right back into it? So then what does the Christian life look like? How, how, do, how do we avoid these two extremes? Luther would use the description of a drunken German. He was German, he can say that. A drunken German trying to get on a horse. We, we have a tendency to, to, to swing from one extreme to another, and the hard part is, is saddling the horse. The answer of how to saddle the horse is here in chapter 8. Think about what he says here. It says, when the accuser comes to condemn us, what does he say there in his opening verses? The Spirit reminds us that we are free in Christ. We have been transferred by the blood of Jesus from sinners to saints. And that is true even when we are indeed guilty again. When our identity is questioned, the Spirit reminds us that we are adopted children of God, much like Saru was. And therefore, we move from slaves to sons. When temptation proves to be too powerful, suffering is overwhelming, or when grief is debilitating, the Spirit reminds us that we have a hope, uh, we have hope in Christ. So we move from being weak to strong. If you want the S's to continue, uh, we could say that uh, the Holy Spirit moves us from being scrawny to strong. 
right? There's not a lot of S words to use there. So you, you decide what you want. Finally, what it is we see here is that when we feel estranged from God, when life's difficulties feed our loneliness, or when we are tempted to believe we have been estranged, the Spirit comes and reminds us that the Father, through the work of the Son, um, we, that God is forever with us. We move from the feeling of separation to the certainty of security. So what I think the best way to approach this passage is actually to do what Paul does. Paul, you notice here Paul writes, uh, Paul, Paul highlights a number of questions. Why not let the questions be our outline? So let's start there with what shall we say? You see it there in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And another way of saying what shall we say is what is the point? You get to all of these verses, 30 verses, and Paul says, what's the point of all this? We can look at the nuance, but what's the big idea here? And well, we see that the God who declares us to be saints, despite evidence of the contrary, the God that makes us sons, despite we constantly want to leave his home, and the God who makes us strong, though we constantly prove our weakness, is the God who keeps us secure, and he never lets us go. That's the whole point, really, of this entire chapter. And that is what the Spirit does in our lives. Security is one of the most important spiritual needs we all have. Security. This is what makes, on the one hand, ritual and tradition so tempting. We may not understand why we burn the incense while we say the prayers, while we eat bread and drink wine, sprinkle babies, or sojourn to holy sites. What we know is we're doing something. And by doing something, we should be safe. I've shared this a thousand times before. When I was in Africa, you would, we would drive through the desert. It was about a three-mile trip to, to go out where we were evangelizing and discipling new believers. You go out to the desert, and there'd be this bright pink or bright purple mosque out, literally out in the middle of the desert. And we would all ask, hey, Mr. Missionary, hey, Mr. Translator, I can't imagine that was a strategically located place to put a mosque. You're in a desert. The camels ain't going there. Well, what is this? They go, oh, very simple. One of the local men uh, was, having, was struggling with his salvation. He's a Muslim. And so he, 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 he's grown up to believe that if you build a mosque, that almost guarantees you you'll go to heaven when you die. Now, you and I look at that and say, that makes no sense. But we do stuff like that all the time. We will just, if I have to, what do I have to do to know that I'm okay, to know that I am secure? Because what we want is security. It is why we Americans spend billions of dollars on insurance, life, health, car, house, etc. The problem with that is that nothing is as secure as we might like for it to be. I've shared this story before, but in 2019, New York Times published an article about safety deposit boxes. And in that story, they tell, us, they, they tell the uh, sad story of a guy by the name of, of Philip Pawnees. I'm guaranteed I mispronounced his last name, so forgive me. He collected rare watches and was quite an expert in the field. By the way, our second pastor was like that. He collected rare watches. Some of y'all may remember Dan Crawley. It's in the book. You should read it. Uh, bestseller. Uh, it's in the footnotes if you care about the watch stuff. 
So never mind. But uh, he felt that his, his house wasn't safe enough for these very expensive, he had like over a million dollars worth of rare watches. So he went and rented a safety deposit box from a local bank. And in like 2017, he went to go get some of his watches, come to find out through a series of, of unfortunate events, they were all gone. He thought, I, I thought for sure this was the most secure place next to Fort Knox I could put this. And here I've discovered it wasn't that. Well, nothing in this life is secure unless it rests in the hands of the risen Savior. Jesus told us this prior to his, his, his death. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. By the way, no one means absolutely no one, including you. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He's saying, well, if in some imaginary scenario they could outpower me, good news is they're in Dad's hands. He ain't outpowering Dad. That really is Paul's point here, isn't it? That, that what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? The secret to security in the ancient world was 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 tied to who your protector was. Powerful kings, mighty walls, large armies. These were the essence of security. Even in Jesus' day, uh, the people in Israel were not too worried about the Visigoths attacking them. Why? Because Rome was in power. Your security was tied to who your protector was. And when Paul was writing to the Romans, he was not worried about uh, the Irish Celts or anything. But at the same time, he, he's reminding them that if your spiritual security is in anything that might be weak, feelings, circumstances, ritual, it's not going to be very secure. So you see there in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is, this, this is clearly a reference to God's power. He is above all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the judge of all things. Uh, he therefore has the authority over all things. You can't beat God, in essence. He is the one with all power and authority. That alone should be the only need of security that, that, that we should have. What can Satan do against God's mighty hand in whom holds our security? What can your neighbor do? What can your coworker say? What threats can government make? If God is for us, he writes, who can be against us? But you'll notice here in verse 32, the emphasis on such security is not just tied to God's unquestioned power and authority. It is tied directly to his saving love. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice the context here of the cross. Think about it. God might be powerful, but does that mean he is good? It's rare to find in the ancient world, or even the modern world, powerful men who are also good. So it, you may be able to say, okay, God is all powerful. God could secure our salvation, but how do we know God will secure our salvation? And that's Paul, what he does there in verse 32, is he shows us that God is the sort of loving God who would not spare his son for us. What a simple point he has here. If God would not withhold his son from us, he will not withhold his love from us. And you understand, and we, we've seen this before, that in the New Testament, God's love, or love in general, frankly, is not, not an idea we should pursue. It is a past event we should remember and model after. 
That is to say that when you see the word love in the New Testament, most of the time it is in the past tense, loved, or it is in reference to a past event. And that past event is always the cross. I've given you this list before, and it's just a fraction of what I could give you. For example, Romans 5a, God demonstrates his own love. Notice that present tense. God demonstrates present tense. He is still demonstrating his love toward us. How? While we were yet sinners, here's the past tense. Christ died. How is God today demonstrating his love for us? Well, he's not sending us love notes in the, in, in, in the mail. He, he's saying, don't forget I died for you. You, you see that love is tied to, to, to the cross. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Both the, 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 the reminder that God loved me, it isn't that God used to love me, but it's the proof that God loves me is that he gave his son for us. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love, present tense. That's the command. Walk right now in love. What does it mean to walk in love? Does it mean with a tie-dye shirt, sandals, and, and uh, uh, listening to hippie music, heading to California? No, it means just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Love is tied to the cross. How do I know that Jesus ever has loved me? Well, I, I, I don't search my feelings. I look at the cross. Ephesians 5, 20, 25, husbands, love, present tense, your wives. By the way, notice Ephesians 5, 2, this is the general command, walk in love. Specifically, men, what does that mean? It means you love your wives. How, how, how does Paul understand loving wives? Does it mean remember your anniversary and smile when you come into the, into the door? No, it means you love her the way your groom has loved you by giving himself up for you. That is to say, ladies, the only good husband is a dead one. Anyway, so going on, 1 John chapter 3, it's an old joke. Um, we know love by this. Notice present tense. We know love by this. This, this means that, that whenever someone uses the word love, it has to be measured by this measuring stick. He laid down his life for us, and we should do the same for one another. Sounds like what Paul said to husbands, doesn't it? Same thing in 1 John 4. We love, why? He loved us. That's all point Paul is saying here is that we know that, yes, God is powerful, but God is also good. And we know that he is good because he has demonstrated his goodness through his love by the means of the cross. How secure can my salvation be? Well, it is as secure as God's love for us. And God's love was stamped with the blood of Jesus. So maybe that is why some of us, uh, maybe this is what some of us struggle with. We don't question God's judgment, perhaps. Maybe, maybe we don't question God's power. We don't question his justice. But maybe when we look into our past, maybe we think about our circumstances. Maybe we're haunted by pervasive sin. Maybe we feel spiritually abandoned. Maybe the grief is overwhelming. And, and we're starting to wonder if God is still there. And Paul is saying to us, the God who did not spare his son would direct you and me to the cross. How do I know God hasn't abandoned me? He sent his son to us. That there is no one in this world I love enough to give you my boy, which is what makes the cross so incredible. Read the end of Romans 11 where Paul is just stunned by it. It is there sinners are transformed in the saints. It is there slaves are adopted as sons. It is there the weak are made strong, and it is there those who feel separated 
are made secure. So what shall we say? Here is what who can condemn. Verse 33 to 34. With the cross of Jesus firmly established, Paul reminds the reader of what he has already said. A lot of this is just repeats. I don't want to spend much on it. Verse 33. Um, uh, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then go down to verse 34. Who is to condemn? Notice those are parallels. They're the same question, which is why we have it up here. Who, who, who can condemn? It's the same question. Who will bring a charge is, is to basically make a condemnation. If I charge you with, with um, uh, X, Y, or Z, I am condemning you with X, Y, and Z. So he's saying, who's going to condemn you? Well, you remember he talked about condemnation in the very first verse of this chapter. There is no condemnation those who in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, look again at verse 33 and 34. It is God who justifies. Therefore, it is God who justifies. Um, and, and that overrides any condemnation. People can condemn and condemn and condemn. It will fall on deaf ears because the sentence has been made. If you've been found innocent of a crime, no one can accuse you again of that crime. So they can shout, they can scream, they can do whatever they want to you. But in the eyes of the law, you are always not guilty of that crime. So too, it is God who is the one who justifies. So too, in verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he's the one who's raised and is at the right hand of God. This is to say, the basis of our justification is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is, he's already explored all this in some detail. Why, why does this matter? The security of salvation is one of the most pervasive and challenging spiritual needs Christians maintain. In fact, I would argue that it is perhaps the most significant pastoral issue in people's lives, whether they admit it or not. Because what you'll find is, is their struggle with pervasive sin. I just can't get over this hump. I keep going back to the same nonsense. Or, or maybe it's grief. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's doubts. May, whatever it is, you'll find that what we're longing for is security in the arms of a loving shepherd. And Paul comes and says that when we feel unsecure, it is in that moment we forget that we are hidden in Christ, and that he died for us. And the Spirit comes and says, hey, don't you remember what Christ has done for you? Why do you let the voice of the accuser rob you of joy? Why do you let your past and the accusation of others and, and your circumstances and your feelings to determine your security? Why do you do that? Isn't the gospel enough? If God is not against you, and why do we allow our past, our mistakes, and our failures to stand against us? Well, look finally, who can separate? If God's power is our security, Christ's cross is the seal of our salvation, then Paul's call concludes God's love is our guarantee. Notice the language there in verse 35 where he says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? I think that is what you should have tattooed on your, your shoulder blade right there. Right? Who can separate us from the love of God? It presumes the love of God, doesn't it? It's in the question. And if God's love is a victorious, pervasive love, then who will separate you from that love? I mean, we, we understand this. Family love, parental love, marital love. Nothing will separate us from those whom we deeply love and abide in. So too, why would we think the God who has made us saints, the God who's adopted us as sons, the God who has strengthened us is the God who would not give us the security of his love? To prove Paul's point, he gives us this list. Now, I'm willing to bet that 
if we were to give a list of what where we feel like we are being our security is being threatened, our list would look a little different. We would choose things like our sin, our idolatries, our failures, our past, our desires, whatever it is. Paul's list reflects the audience in whom he is writing to. Notice the list: tribulation, persecution, nakedness, sword, distress, famine, danger. Many Americans can give a list like this, but we're not, we're not concerned with the government th- showing up here yet with guns ablazing, saying everyone on the ground, you're going to prison. We're not afraid of that yet. We're not too concerned about a, a mob fine, going door to door to all of our homes and burning, us, burning, burning it down. We're not afraid of that yet. However, I have found plenty of examples of believers who over the years, when they have a bad day, when there is deep sorrow in their lives, a tragic death, Something like that. It is amazing how quickly they assume God has abandoned them. And Paul's point, he, here's, here, here's to the Romans. He says, many of you are going through some really rough things. You're suffering tremendously, and it's all things outside of your control. It's not decisions you've made. It's about the Savior you worship. Here comes the government. Here comes your neighbor. Here comes the system. Here comes all of that, and they all hate you. And, 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 and the temptation is to think, well, here I am, uh, 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 suffering, therefore God has abandoned me. And Paul says, well, nothing's going to separate you from the love of God. Not tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Isn't that good news? In fact, he goes even farther to say in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, regard as sheep to be slaughtered. He's quoting Psalm 44, 22. He's depicting the extremity of persecution. That is to say that some of us feel like we are sheep and it is just a matter of time before the government or the, the, the neighborhood just kills us. We are being slaughtered like lambs. We are the sacrificial lamb of our society, our pagan society. That's an extreme, though it's a true extreme you get in Rome. I mean, Paul's going to be beheaded by Nero in a few years of this being written. What's his point? Nothing's going to separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Maybe you need to highlight those words, nothing. You can go back up to verse 1, and what is those words? Therefore, there is no condemnation. There is now no. You can circle the word no. No condemnation. Come down here in verse 35 and say that nothing will separate you from the love of Christ emphatic message that, that he has here. Well, in fact, he, he, he adds to it, uh, we are assured more of God, not just of God's presence in our suffering, but of God's power in our suffering. That's what you get in verse 37. He's already established that even suffering can and will not separate us from God. Uh, more than that, suffering will prove God's redemptive power. This is key, verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him. You see, you see the radical uh, uh, ethic of, of Christianity. Suffering proves the power of God because the Spirit gives us the perseverance through suffering. That's the Spirit's work in your life. We are more than conquerors. That's a compound word, by the way. Um, I'm going to simplify this. The, the, the first part, uh, or, or one half of the word, is our word Nike, Nikeo. Um, it's, it's, it's where we get Nike. Just work with me here, folks. It means to be victorious or to conquer. That's why the shoe company went with it and paid Michael Jordan all that money. The, the, the other part of the word is huper. It, it, it functions in such a way that it gives it, uh, um, it's not just mere victory, it's over-the-top victory. So, so he could say that, that we are more than conquerors, this nikeo. But rather he says, no, you're huper nikeo. You are far and above conquerors. 
This is an exaggeration that he has here. And you notice again, the means of such power is not our ability, but the love uh, is through him who loved us. By the way, notice love is past tense there in verse 37. So if suffering, persecution, prosecution, worldly hatred would not separate you from God, can anything else? Can your worries, can your insecurities, can, your, can the opinions of others? No. And in case it's still not clear in our heads, notice the triumphant climax. And this is a list worth meditating on. You read this list, I don't, I'm not sure Paul wants us to go deep dive into everything he has here. I think he's trying to think of extremes. When we may say left, right, up, or down, just, just as far as the east is from the west, he's thinking of extremes. Notice this, can death separate you from God? No. Can life separate you from God? I don't know what that means, but the answer is no. Can life separate you from God? Well, you have death on the one hand, life on the other. Well, those are two extremes. That means everything in the middle can't separate you from God's love. Can angels or other divine beings separate you from God? No. Can, can circumstances, that is, things present, separate you from God? The other extreme, can uncertainty, that is, things to come, separate you from God? No. Can human power or supernatural power separate you from God? No. Can distance, whether height or depth, separate you from God? Can anything in creation separate you from God? No. Can I tell you the first time I remember this passage ever being read? I can give you the exact date it was read. And who read it? September the 14th, 2001, by President George W. Bush. In the National Cathedral, I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, you know, for, for days after 9-11, I, I, I was in a class where you, uh, you, you helped little kids who were behind in reading. We used to read in school. Now we just don't teach it. But, but back then we wanted people to read before they graduated high school. And, and we were bigots like that. And, and so, you know, I, we would come in as sophomores and we would help these little kids read. And it was basically an easy credit class. Right? And, and we, we got to leave the high school, walk across all by ourselves because we were adult then. And, and I loved it. But, but I remember we canceled from, from that Tuesday to the Friday. We didn't take on kids anymore. And so what we did was we watched the news, and it was 9-11, 24 hours a day. I still remember when they first played the Osama bin Laden tapes, right? He's taking credit for, for all that. Some of you all may remember that. Some of you all put that out of your mind, maybe. But I remember September 14th, it was in that class, which was right after lunch, third block, watching the, uh, uh, the prayer service, because it was a national day of prayer by order of, of the president. Billy Graham spoke there. One of the best sermons I ever heard Billy Graham give. He was the nation's pastor. And the President of the United States got up there with the other former presidents right there in front. And what did he read in the context of hate, in the context of terrorism? This right here. In fact, let me read to you from, from that speech. On this National Day of Prayer and Remembrance, we ask Almighty God to watch over our nation and grant us patience and resolve in all that is to come. We pray that he will comfort and console those who now walk in sorrow. We thank him for each life we now must mourn and the promise of a life to come. As we have been assured, neither death nor life, angels or principalities or powers, things present or things to come, height or death can separate us from God's love. May he bless the souls of the departed. May he comfort our own. May he always guide our country. I don't think Paul has terrorism in mind, but he doesn't not have it in mind. If life and death won't do it, 
if human power and supernatural power, if hate and love will not separate you from God's security, then what can? The challenge is for us to believe it and apply it. That's where we always get tripped up. God's love is not a fickle love. In fact, we can apply that love to everything else he has said in this chapter. God's love is a perfecting love. That's why he turns sinners into saints. God's love is a welcoming love. That's how he moves slaves to become sons. God's love is a powerful love. That's how he makes the weak strong. And God's love is an eternal love. That is how he gives us true security, saturated with his grace. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. I mentioned Saru earlier, and um, I misled you in that I didn't tell you the whole story. He was three, year old, three years old when his father abandoned him. He was five years old when he got on that train, and he ended up over 900 miles away in a strange land. He was taken to an orphanage as a lost boy. He was adopted by Australian parents. He did go to college and have a career. All those things are true. But as you can imagine, being an Indian boy with an Indian name that no one was pronouncing right, growing up in Australia, he wanted to go home. No matter how much he was loved by his adopted parents, there is this sense of, of, I have a family out there who don't know that I'm still alive. So what do you do in a situation like that? Strangely enough, Saru turned to Google Earth. It's a true story. And he didn't know much. He was only five. He said, what do I know? Well, I know I have a technology with satellite imaging that maybe I can see something I recognize. But that is, you talk about a needle in, in the haystack. There's billions of haystacks. So he started with, okay, if, if, if I know I landed here off the train and it went so many miles, then I can sort of have an idea, sort of radius to, to go. And it's okay, the, 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 where I would have gotten on the trains here, but it's not like the, 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 the train station was two feet from my house. Rather, I had to walk. So I know, here's the train station. That took years for him to find the train station he got on. Years for him to find that. And he says, okay, now that I, I'm here, now I can build a radius. And because I can sort of remember how long would it take us to get there, build a radius, and through uh, pain, staking detail, also with help of, help of Facebook, he eventually found his village. With the blessings of his parents, because he was an adult, uh, educated adult now, he actually went to, to, to India, and he had an idea of it's, it's in this area, and, he, and the only thing he had was the picture of himself from the orphanage when he was five. And he went from person to person and says, do you know of a mother who lost her boy over 20 years ago, he looked like this. Do you know of a mother who lost her boy 20 years ago who looked like this? And person by person, eventually they said, I know exactly who you're looking for. And he took him back to his village. If you don't believe me, then the story is true. A, uh, an award-winning movie was produced called Lion, like the animal, L-I-O-N telling his story. It's a true story. It's amazing, isn't it? This sense of separation he fixed through modern technology. 
And technology isn't going to fix the separation we often feel with our maker. Facebook won't do that. Google Earth won't do that. Only the gospel can and will do that. If we believe, if we truly believe and preach it to ourselves. Let's go to one prayer. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as